got Triple B's in the building. Big baller brand supports the NBA buzz and the inside buzz. We with you, man. Triple B style. I remember in preparation for this interview, I read a quote by famous author J.K. Rowling, which said, when she hit rock bottom, that was truly the foundation on which she changed her life. I'm Mikey Domagala, and on episode 40 of Inside Buzz, I'll talk to Aaron Showtime Taylor, a man who truly hit rock bottom after a 50-year-to-life prison sentence, and how the game of basketball and love for commentating changed his life. He's known for the Netflix documentary Q-Ball, being a PA announcer for the Golden State Warriors, an appearance on the Kelly Clarkson Show, and being the host of the Heart in the Paint podcast. But that all doesn't happen without a 26-year prison sentence where he became the hottest play-by-play basketball commentator in pretty much American prison history, and most importantly now, becoming a reformed man who is impacting the world in a positive way. Aaron, I appreciate you coming on here, episode 40 of Inside Buzz. My pleasure to talk to you and to have you on to tell your story. It, man, you don't know how honored I am for this, man. I, I waited, like we was just talking off camera. I waited before I even came and asked if I could be interviewed. Cause I was like, you know, you have to come to this show correct. You can't just show up just cause you Aaron Showtime Taylor. You know what I'm saying? You have to come with something, with something of value here. So, you know, it's definitely an honor and I'm glad I waited for this. So Aaron, I touched on it a little bit in the introduction, but for those who don't know and don't know your full story, explain who you were in 1994 and what put you in jail for so long. Um, in 1992, I was in a relationship with a woman and she was pregnant and she had the baby. And when the baby was about four or five months old, she came to me and told me in the same conversation, one, that the baby wasn't mine, right? So that was a jolt right there. And I thought I was a father, you serious, right? The second statement though was the one that sent me over the edge and that's, she was actually a lesbian. Right. And so in 1994, and we're talking 1994, so we can flash back because now we know terms like hypermasculinity, toxic masculinity. You know what I'm saying? Now we know those terms and what's behind them. But back then, when you're in the midst of living in it, it's just the way you grew up. You know, I grew up in an area where you literally couldn't have sympathy or empathy for the next person. Right. And then if you showed any signs of weakness, then you could actually become a target. And the only way I knew how to deal with those two pieces of information at the time was to self-medicate. So I went back to smoking cocaine. I was already smoking chronic. Everybody was smoking chronic back then. That was, you know, doing anything. But I was smoking chronic. I went back to smoking cocaine. I started drinking real heavy. I picked a pistol up and I started taking all my pain out and everything I was feeling out on other people. And so on August the 25th, 1994, I went to Florence Furniture Store on Florence, right down the street from the Lakers from the uh, forum. I mean, it's so crazy when I'm telling you this, man. It's literally a five minute walk from the corner where the forum parking lot is to the furniture store that I tried to rob in 1994 on August the 25th. And it was early in the morning and I walked in and I made the guy, uh, the owner, he has his employee was in there too, but I had the owner and I made him believe that I wanted to do business with him. Uh, Got him to the back of the store, pulled my gun on him. There was a fight. I dropped my gun and he got up and ran when he ran to his front desk, him and his employee both pulled out guns, right? So now <laughs> I'm laughing, but it's not funny, but I go in to commit a robbery and next thing you know, I'm in a literal shootout in there with some guys that's running a furniture store. <laughs> the last place you think it's going to be like this, but in the process, I get shot right here in the face. My head hits a wall, I fall down. As I'm coming to the owner of the store is by my head on the phone. He's on one knee. He's on the phone. 
but the employee is coming down towards me with a rifle towards my face. And again, I'm shot, but I remember putting my hand up and it was, it was a weak, feeble attempt. But the store owner said, no, don't hit him. The police are on the way. You know, and I think I said it in the Kelly Clarkson interview. Years later, after I'd been in prison a while, I reflected back on that, that one particular moment, that moment. Because my whole life had been, if I catch you slipping, that's you. And now you caught me slipping, it's me. Scott showed me mercy, man. Told the dude not to hit me after I'd been shot. You leave me alone, the police is coming. So years later is when I flashed back and that's one of the catalysts for change for me. But yeah, 1994, just to sum up that question, I was a thug, I was in the street, I had a gun, that was me. One inch, I mean, even, even like a centimeter, less than a centimeter, talk to me about that bullet just missing you, keeping you alive, and then the man coming over to you who could have finished you off, but didn't. Was that truly your rock bottom or did the rock bottom hit when you were in prison? He was trying to end my life. What happened was, so during the shootout where I had walked the store owner down the aisle toward the back of the store, I had to come back up that same aisle to get out. And when I finally made it to the front, I couldn't go out the door that I came in because I was totally exposed. If I run that way, I'm gonna get shot off all over here. The door that was on this side, I didn't know what was on the other side of it, but I ran to that one because I had cover. And when I snatched the door open, it was a bar gate right here. And I looked out and the sun was shining on me. And I looked back this way to see what they was doing. And that's when I saw the guy with the rifle do this. So I was turning my head to look back at the sunlight because I'm like, this is it. So this is the last thing I want to see. And as I'm turning my head, the bullet hits me, drives it into the wall, and then I fall out. So when I wake up, I'm shocked. Just in that moment, I'm like, damn, I'm not dead. I know I got hit, you know, and I'm laying there. I can feel the blood dripping out my face, right? But again, like you said, that whole little thing, me doing this, just in that motion and him shooting, me turning, a bullet caught me here and just drove my head in. It didn't even break the bone. But it did drive my head into the wall. And like you said, a, a, a nanosecond, a millisecond, a, a 64th of an inch, just that little, just that little thing, my life is gone. And when I finally figured that out, when I finally took a look at myself in prison and said, man, you could have been dead, right? And then I kicked back and was like, I got a guy show me mercy. After I was shot, I tried to rob their store. And here I am in prison now. The first seven years, I was still messing around, still bullshitting with, with people, still playing games with my religion and stuff. And I just made a decision. Right after 9-11, I was in the hole in High Desert State Prison. Uh, it was 2002, January. And I made a decision at that point. I said, you know what? The first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to start, I'm going to stop discriminating against people based on their religious beliefs. That was the first move I made. But how are we going to say that we're, looking for peace or we're peaceful people if the outer expression of the religion is always rooted to some type of violence. If the outer expression of your religion is always showing some type of violence towards somebody else or judging somebody else, then I had to take a look at what I was practicing as a religion, not Islam, but just religion, period. And I needed to get away from the man-made structure of religion and get it to the spiritual part of religion. And so those are the things that took place while I was in prison based on this subject that we're talking about right now, a nanosecond, a 64th of an inch, 
a sliver, the space of a spider web is what kept me from having my head blown off or my head driven into a wall and I live. Tee up how basketball comes to play into all of this. You becoming a commentator in prison. You growing up, did you have a journalism background? Were you a basketball player yourself? Who were some of your idols growing up in basketball and, and commentating? So my first, my first idol in basketball was Julius Irvin, Dr. J. Uh, I've always been the guy, you know, I like shooters, but I like high flyers. I like guys that come to the rim with authority and dunk on your ass, you know what I'm saying? And come up in there and give it to you like you want it. So you want to stand in this paint? We're going to go hard in the paint. So Dr. J was definitely one of my first idols, and so was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar when he was still with the Milwaukee Bucks right before he got traded to the, uh, to the Los Angeles Lakers. And then you had uh, a lot of other ABA players that I absolutely loved, downtown Freddie Brown, George Gervin, the Iceman, uh, Daryl Dawkins, Chocolate Thunder. You know what I'm saying? You had some characters over there in that ABA that was with the business back in the 70s. They had style. They had finesse on the court. They was able to do the things that the NBA was trying to keep out, you know? And so because they played that way in the 70s, the ABA was kind of like the and one, right, of the NBA uh, just a few, back, few years ago when I was locked up. Then after uh, Dr. J, right, uh, when he when the 76ers beat the Lakers in 19 in 18 1983, I think was that championship where Dr. J came up from the other side and pulled it up. After that, Doc was already old when Jordan is coming into the league, right? So I think they may have been in the league maybe one or two seasons together. But when I saw Jordan, the moment I saw that dude take off and start flying, Jordan's only like two years older than me, I think. When Jordan comes into the league. I feel like a big kid again, because even though I'm a grown man, I'm watching this dude do everything that I wish I could do, you know, as a basketball player. Um, to get to the question about the commentary or going to school for it, never. When I was a kid in the fifth, sixth, and seventh grade, I had special classes, um, gifted classes, where I had to take uh, courses at USC on the weekends. I hated that <laughs> I'm in the fifth grade, man. I want to get out and play. You know what I'm saying? I want to play with my homeboys and whatnot. But I got to go to school and take Spanish, and they had me in uh, uh, accelerated math classes and stuff. This is back in the 70s, you know, and I'm like, I want to hang out with my friends. I don't want to be in school on Saturday, you know. So I was rebellious that way. And any other educational pursuits came after I went to prison. You know, uh, I graduated high school on the street, but I didn't have my diploma. And uh, two days after I graduated high school when I was 16, I immediately went into plumbing. Right. So you're listening to the story and it's really a, an American story. If you think about it, you're looking at a person who is a complication. Right. I gangbang, but I also do water polo. <laughs> I'm into I, I gangbang, but I'm also uh, on the swim team. You know, I gangbang but I did everything else that everybody else was doing at the same time. Whatever was going on in the 80s, I was doing the same thing with the college preppy look in high school, all of that stuff. I wasn't always running around in khaki suits with guns in my hand, even though I was a gang member, right? But it was also about enjoying life too, even as a young kid. My question in response to all that is, is why? That's just the environment I grew up in. It's, it's not a... Uh, it's not a, I'm not going to say oh, I'm a victim of circumstance. No, I was born into a circumstance. And while I was in that circumstance, I was making bad decisions in that, in that position. That's what led me to jail. 
But as a child, you don't know that when you're growing up, you know, you're just doing everything everybody else is doing. You start smoking cigarettes at 12 in the garage, cough up a lung and you don't do it anymore. <laughs> On Instagram, you go by at rebirth of chick with the nod, I'm sure, to legendary Lakers commentator Chick Hearn. Was he was he your guy growing up? Was he your favorite commentator? I wasn't even a Laker fan. I've been a Clipper fan all my life. But everybody in my family and all my homeboys are Laker fans, right? I distinctly remember the Lakers in the finals, that 1983 finals I was just talking about a minute ago. And we were living uh, on Santa Barbara. It's called King Boulevard now. But back then, it was Santa Barbara and Arlington here in L.A. And what we used to do whenever the Lakers came on, the, M uh, the NBA was on CBS back then. The Lakers come on, the TV goes on, but the volume goes down, and you turn the radio up and let Chick Hearn do the simulcast. So no matter what was going on, I've always heard Chick from the moment I was aware of basketball. Later, I went back and heard about Johnny Most. I heard about uh, Doc, uh, what's his name? The, the, guy, the hockey guy that just retired, Doc, uh, Doc er Emmerich. Emmerich. That guy got me interested in hockey back in 1991 or 92, I think it was, when he had just started. And I had Sega Genesis. And so they had the NHL on there, so I get it. And they had Boston, they had the Hartford Whalers, they had the, uh, uh, you know, all of the teams, the Kings, the uh, Canadians, they had all the teams on there, right? But I don't know none of the players. I'm a young black dude in the ghetto. Everybody on here is white. What kind of sport is this where they're rolling around on blades, big ass white dudes with sticks and pads on, and they can fight, and that's it? They don't get kicked out? Is this a two-minute penalty or a five-minute? I need to learn about this sport, right? To your question, what it leads to is that my pursuit of sports and my pursuit of playing uh, video games back then came together at the same time to broaden my whole perspective on sports because, again, I'm a young black dude in the city. Nobody, when they found out, when people found out I loved hockey, the first look I would get was this. What? <laughs> Fast forward to prison. You get there. Are you automatically just calling games yourself on the sideline? I mean, I know in the documentaries you could see you with the microphone and all of that. When did the microphone also come into play? So when I first got arrested, I started doing play by play in the county jail, then the reception center, then state prison. The one thing doing play-by-play -play in prison did was gave me a unique identity. It was something that nobody else could do on the yard like I did. You know, you got guys that braid hair, people iron clothes, you know, work out. Everybody has their own thing. This was something that I did that made me uniquely special and made me a central point on the yard that, that was beyond race, beyond uh, region, beyond class. You know, this was something unique to me. And every day almost almost every day uh, for at least 24 and a half of those 26 years. I was out on the yard giving my voice up to those basketball players on that yard. And uh, when I was in the Kelly Clarkson interview and she asked me, you know, about the surreal moment when I was standing there with, with Steph and I told her the night before I got on that plane to go up to San Francisco, I literally that night, set up and went back to Lancaster in my head. And I thought about every basketball game, every basketball player that I have ever called a game for inside of CDCR. Because the only reason I was going to the Warriors was because of the play-by-play -play I did inside of prison for those guys. I'm going to say it now. I'm going to say it again. 
If you think I sound good, if you think that I'm professional at what I do, can you imagine the type of games that I was calling inside of prison that nobody saw but us? And that's why I have unanimous, 100% support. It's crazy to say this. Unanimous, 100% support from every incarcerated and formerly incarcerated person who understands the nature of what I had to do and where I did it and how it got out here. The first time they put a mic in front of me was in 2013. So from 1994 to 2012, across six prisons, across three different security levels, I called basketball. Sounds, sounds like it makes you emotional because of the amount of people in there you touched, the amount of people you made feel like they were free again, playing basketball in the park, but they're really in the prison yard. And how many of the players would come up to you and say, you know, great broadcaster, I like what you just said based off what I did. How many gave you props after the games? I can't think of a moment. I can't think of a yard. I can't think of a prison where at least one person but definitely it was much more than one where at least one person came up to me either that day or about my sale later on, or, you know, whatever. And said, Hey man, you was calling some good games today, man. And literally I've had people tell me the gamblers would be around the court guys playing P knuckle for money, guys playing poker for money. If you had dice, you're shooting dice for money. You know what I'm saying? Playing spades for money, whatever it is, chess, they're all around the court. Then you have the people standing by the court watching the game. And in some cases, you had the COs in the gun towers, right, watching the game. And I remember the gamblers came by my cell. Uh, this was when I was still on the level four at Lancaster. It was two of them, but they was representative of all the gangsters. They came to me with about $50 worth of canteen. It was soups, sausages, you know, all this stuff, stuff you need, the stuff you eat in prison, right? And they dropped it off at my cell. And I'm like, what's this for? They said, bro, every day we go out there to gamble, we don't even have to watch the game because we're listening to you. We, they turned their radios down where they listen to music and listen to the play-by-play -play so they can listen to the game, you know? And, and that happened at every prison. It gave me the ability to escape the pain for what I did to come to jail. And play-by-play -play gave me the ability to bring people in and say, let's just forget that we in prison for a minute and I'm gonna do this play-by-play -play and we're gonna imagine that we're in a stadium. We're gonna imagine that we're in an arena and I'm now, gonna create it with my voice. Any pushback from the guards or like your warden at any time for what you were doing on the sideline and calling games? The only people that ever hated on me were other inmates at every prison consistently. But specifically at San Quentin, it got real bad because that's where I got the microphone at. But um, no guard. No warden, no associate warden, no. In fact, when I was at Sentinel State Prison uh, from 2005, from May 2005 all the way until February 2011, and specifically on B Yard for five of those six years, we had, I created a softball league first, and then I created the basketball league second. Both of those ran three complete seasons the last three years I was there. And all three of them were success. They were the reason that Warden Uribe, U-R-I-B-E, Warden Uribe at uh, Sentinel State Prison, 
the captain of the facility that I was at, uh, Captain uh, Kunzil Ruan, uh, K-U-N-Z-I-L-R-U-A-N, and the individual who wrote my specific chrono, he started off as a counselor, as a CC1, he went to a CC2, counsel, correctional counselor too. And when you're at that level, you're either a lieutenant or a captain. So when he left the correctional, uh, correctional counseling part, he had equal to a captain. So he came to work on the yard where he saw me start the leagues at three years previous. Those leagues I started kept violence down for three straight years. Inmate to inmate and inmate to guard, violence went down. The CBL was the name of the league. At that time, it was called the Convicts All-Star Basketball League on a level three. And the guys in the league, we had the league set up so, so sweet that the show, which was the paper that I put together to promote the people in the league, when we talked about them, they started mailing these things home to their families. We're talking about guys who never had anything positive to say about jail, anything positive to say about themselves. Now, all of a sudden, there's a newspaper describing what I was doing on the, on the field or the court. Mama, here, look what I'm doing good. I'm doing good in here, right? The leagues that I created on the level three helped lift people up. Yes, there was clowning in the paper. Yes, you may get clowned on the play-by-play, -play, but the whole overall thing was I needed those guys to buy into the system that I put together, which was going to keep violence down, but I had to do an illegal move against CDCR rules to do it. I had to tell them to give me money for each team and put it in a bag. Well, technically, that's gambling. But what I did with that was, and this is what's helping me now on the street, I created a system where you give me your bag with your canteen, you itemize it and put it, the list in, inside the bag, close it up, keep a list for yourself and hand me the list. When I take this bag inside, I'm gonna open it up, making sure everything that's on my paper and this paper in the bag is the same. And at the end of the season, whoever won the, whoever won the uh, lead was gonna get 80% of that bag. 20% went five minutes, I'm the, I mean, 5%, I'm the commissioner, so this is my cost because I'm doing all the stats I'm taking all the stats that the statisticians take and I align them on pieces of paper, tape them together. And then the next morning before I go to work in the program office, I stop by the basketball court, take my little stool and I take that paper up. Now this paper is up about eight feet high. Listen to what I'm finna tell you, your audience, listen to this. You have never seen anything like grown ass men who are in prison for committing some of the most atrocious and then sometimes some of the most innocent crimes literally run across the yard like this. to be the first one to the poll to see where they was at on the stat sheet. I set up in my cell sometimes till two or three o'clock in the morning doing that stuff. If I made one mess up on the paper, I'd have to ball it up, throw it away and do that piece again. But to see those guys come out that building, grown ass men, grown ass men in their forties and fifties sometimes. There I am, my name is on the list. That's what it's all moved. about. That's what my it's all about. And so when I got to San Quentin, the first year when Mark Jackson came, I didn't have the sound equipment. It was some guys on the sideline hating on me. But the following year, I went to the public information officer, Sam Robinson, after I did an all-star baseball game that had um, that had a, a, a all-star pitcher, won the, won, the, won, the, uh, won the World Series in the 70s. I'm going to think his name in a minute, but he came into San Quentin for an all-star game, and they let me be the play-by-play uh, -play for the all-star game on baseball. And after that was good, I went back to Sam. I said, hey, man, since I did all right on the baseball, you think you let me do the basketball? He said, we'll see. Yeah. 
they're still trying to figure, they're still trying to replace me now. <laughs> and Aaron, the connection between the NBA's Golden State Warriors and the San Quentin Warriors full of prisoners, how did that all come about in 2012, I believe? I'll start there. That was the most important day of the year for everybody, for everybody. You have an NBA team, the coaching staff, coming into a prison. They don't do that anywhere. You know, that's movie shit, you know, longest yard and that type of stuff. But the guy that put the, the basketball program together at San Quentin, his name is Robert Bishop Butler. And what he did in 2004, I think it was, he wrote to some local uh, radio stations and said, hey, we're putting a challenge out inside of San Quentin. We want a basketball team to come in here and play against us, right? Who, who, who's willing to come in here and take the fade inside of a prison? And it just so happens that two guys, Don Smith and Bill Epling of Christian Sports Ministries answers the call. They bring a team in, it's building them, they get dragged, you know, they get, they get, get just, they, they, they just get beat up. And so Bill start getting better players to come up in here and he start recruiting from some of these junior colleges and, and other colleges. And while he's doing that, unfortunately, they're arresting a lot of good basketball players. So there's a constant stream of good basketball players in Quinton. And then there's a constant stream of good basketball players coming into San Quentin. So by the time I get there in 2011, a guy I know, his name is Isaiah Caldwell. He just went to the board. I'll find out if he got a date or not. But he comes up to me after he heard me do play-by-play -play just for the regular thing. And he said, hey, man, uh, the Golden State Warriors general manager comes up here, Bob Myers. I'm going to introduce you to him. Hey, man, who the hell you think you're talking to, man? A general manager from the Golden State Warriors is coming into a prison. Shut up, man. What do you think this is? <laughs> who do you think I am? just so happens bob did come in but that particular day i was working on death row feeding it uh putting their trays together so i missed that game but it wasn't the annual game the annual game was a couple of months later that's when they brought draymond green in for the first time in his rookie year the same year they drafted draymond and brought him they drafted festus azili and harrison barnes festus azili right now has been a host of, he's been a guest on my show at least three times at least once on instagram and two on hard in the paint and the connection to the Warriors is really, really deep in the sense that you have an NBA organization that's literally committed to social justice and social justice reform. And it's not what you say, it's what you do. Now, I don't know who in the NBA looked at me when the idea came up about bringing me up to the, uh, to the Chase Center and said, hey, man, we think it would be a cool idea to bring this guy up here, right? I don't know. I don't know who on the other side was speaking against it. I don't even take it personal because if I'm in their position, I understand that. Are we really going to take a chance with a guy who did 26 years in prison, who just happens to sound good doing play by play? We don't know nothing about his past. We don't know nothing about him other than he's a prisoner. Why are you guys willing to take this chance? And the reason that I will never do anything, never do anything to bring bad light on myself because that brings bad light on people who believe in me. The Warriors gave me the opportunity to show the entire country what it looks like to be rehabilitated and what a rehabilitated person can do when you release them from prison with a much healthier spirit and psychological state and you give them the support that they need. Now, I'm not gonna sit here and call CDCR's parole process the most virtuous thing in the world. I'm not going to say it's the most helpful thing in the world. There are programs in there that can help you, right? 
but you have to want to get out and do it yourself. And because I was out there doing it and then I got the backing from those people, never am I going to let them down. And as I started off the show, I'll say it again as we close this part of the question out. My first representation is to the incarcerated inside, every last one of them. I can't stop the judge what they're in there for because then I'm going to start being exactly what I don't want to be, right? Uh, some parts of me are still, some crimes are worse than others and you need to stay over there even though I speak for you, but please don't talk to me because that crime you committed is some sick <laughs> I do have that feeling. Don't ever get it twisted. I'm not sitting here saying that everybody should be out of jail, abolish prisons. No, we need jails. It's some other to do shit that need to be locked up. The stuff I was doing in 94, I needed to be locked up, but maybe not for as long as I was, right? Maybe my example is after you reach a certain point of rehabilitation and there's really nothing left for you to rehabilitate, maybe we should start looking at that person at that date instead of waiting another 10 years. You know what I'm saying? Well, let's wait and see. We'll give him 10 years worth of time to get in trouble. Yeah, there you go. You walk down the wrong line and you cross that yellow line. We're going to deny you five years parole. Really, that's what we're going to do? So the Golden State Warriors as an organization, as uh, representing social justice reform, put their money where their mouth is in me. And, and I'm not going to let them down, and I'm not going to let anybody in blue down. And other than just showing up some of those guys, the Warriors players, the Warriors staff, who were some that really reached the prisoners on like a human level? Rather than just showing up, they wanted to show up and really kind of make a contribution to um, the prisoners that you were with. If you a believer in the Bible and you're listening to me, everything the Warriors are doing with San Quentin State Prison is everything that Jesus lays out in the New Testament about how you're supposed to treat those who you consider less than you. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was in prison, you came to visit me. Mm -hmm. So nobody from the Warriors organization since I was incarcerated and since I've been out has ever said out of their mouth in front of me or even gave me the even the suspicion the suspicion that they weren't sincere in what they were doing. No, the words are straight up, you know, uh, specifically D uh, Draymond Green. We're talking about a guy who was the number one draft pick for the Warriors in 2012. Then he comes back in 2017 with Kevin Durant. Both occasions, Draymond stayed the entire game. Both occasions, he went away from his quote unquote handlers and went and sat over what we used to call the Black Sea in San Quentin. There's an area where most of the Blacks kick it at because everything in prison is racially segregated, even on a level two. So there's a space by the court I used to call the Black Sea. None but Black folks over there. And you look up during a timeout when I'm not talking, and I look to my left, and Draymond Green is sitting at the table playing dominoes with my homeboy uh, 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 Marvin Cosby, a.k.a. Lunch Pail, the original Lunch Pail inside. This dude hit that basketball court like it's a job hard hat and a lunch pail when you come up in there. One of the best defenders and one of the most pure jump shots you ever gonna see from B-Nut. B-Nut, I hope you see this, baby. I'll, I'll put you out there this time. <laughs> and he's sitting there with my boy Marvin Cosby, Caesar McDowell, who was the heckler in the movie Q-Ball, who now is the CEO of Unite the People, a, a nonprofit organization that's working on sentence reduction. He's sitting at the table with Draymond Green and there's a third person. And so you got a four man domino game. Draymond's over there talking. You know what I'm saying? I hear, wow, what the, what is you talking about? And somebody said, somebody looked, he said, fool, my uncle's in the penitentiary in Michigan. Y'all ain't said nothing. Draymond Green, Draymond, Money Green. 
the realest, the realest of the real. That doesn't take away from any other, anybody else that when their coach Jackson came up in there in 2012, when I'm doing play-by-play -play on the sideline with no microphone, at halftime, he slides up to me. Hey, man, I know some dudes at ESPN, if they heard you, they would really be worried about their jobs. Do you realize what Mark Jackson said to me in 2012, man? I never, I heard people from 1994 to 2012 tell me how good I was, tell me how much I sounded like Chick Hearn. But all these people are wearing blue. Even guards would come up to me and be like, man, you're real good. But I just had Mr. Hand Down, Man Down, Mr. Sit Next to Mike Breen at that time, Mr. Be Up in the Booth Talking Crazy, Mr. Mama That Go That Man Again, slide up to me at halftime in a game inside a prison and said, I know some dudes at ESPN that if they heard you, they would be worried about their job. And trust me, when he said that, I was the wrong motherfucker to tell that. Because I looked, I said, what? Mark Jackson said that? I'm finna get better. Because I wasn't even that good then. I was making a bunch of mistakes. It's the power of a word. A power of a word at the right time in the right season. When you plant that seed like that, and he planted that in my head, I said to myself, it. I'm a quick. I'm a stop acting like a play-by-play -play announcer, and I'm going to be a play-by-play -play announcer. I'm a stop. I finally. I had always imitated Chick Hearn in some shape, form, or fashion. When I was at Sentinella, I kind of broke away from the Chick Hearn mode. They still was calling me Baby Chick, but it turned more into Showtime. The rebirth of Chick came when I'm sitting up at Sentinella after Mark Jackson said that to me. I'm like, man, I need a hashtag to get ready for just in case I get out of jail. Even though I got 50 to life and my parole date isn't until 2043, somehow, some way, I need to make this hashtag last all the way till I get out. <laughs> well, that being said, 2043, your parole date, how'd you get out in 2020? There was a change to the law in Prop 57. And Prop 57 gave individuals who were sentenced under the three strikes law, which was nonviolent third strikes. And that's where the, the twist comes in at. I don't know. Listen, Mike, I don't want you to take this person. I don't know what your ancestors did when they was making the law here, right? But for some reason, they said robbery was a nonviolent crime. <laughs> Imagine me. I just described the crime I committed to come to jail. I went into a store and tried to execute a violent robbery. We were having a shootout. I get hit, dragged off to the pokey. And in 2018, they passed a bill that said nonviolent third strikers get Prop 57 action. And I'm sitting there like, yeah, that definitely wasn't no nonviolent crime until I get called into the counselor's office. They said, you're eligible for, the th for Prop 57. I said, what? Are you serious? They said, man, back then, that type of crime you committed was considered serious nonviolent. Thank you, white men, for setting this system up specifically for you, because I'm going to gain from it. I'm going to get my black ass out of here. <laughs> so the Warriors players, the staff against the San Quentin Warriors, um, probably about eight, eight-ish years of games, if you, I'm sure, COVID canceled some of them. Who really came out on top most times? The record stands right now three to four. The Golden State Warriors coaching staff is up. They won the first three, 2012, 2013. Yeah, they won 12, 13, and 14, and then they lost in 2015 when Luke Walton came in. That was the first time I seen Bob Myers actually have a frown on his face 
and literally talk shit to somebody, right? Because he got up in Luke's face. I can't repeat what he said. That's my boy. I'll just say that they had an amicable uh, resolution at the end of that conversation for Luke Walton to start playing basketball and quit bullshitting. <laughs> but they ended up losing. Bob hated that shit. I asked him in the interview on my Instagram live show, and he said, I mean, come on, man. If you lose it there, they never let you live it there. <laughs> and so 12, 13, and 14 went to the Warriors. 15 went to the San Quentin Warriors. 16 went to the GS Warriors. And 17 and 18 went to the San Quentin Warriors. I was there for every one of those games. I called every one of those games. Every time the Warriors came down that hill every year to do that, I took it as a live job interview. And every time I finished and I talked to Bob, I'm like, you know, I'm coming to talk to you when I get out. And he just started laughing. Then he came in for 2016, 17, I think it was, for the Sports and Social Justice Symposium. And Bob Myers and uh, Robbie Gold, Bob Myers, Robbie Gold, uh, 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 Eric Reed, Lewis Murphy, myself. Well, I wasn't going to be on stage until Bob went to Van Jones and said, no, you got to have Showtime up here with us because... It's, it ain't shit unless we got him. He's he's the voice. That's the voice of San Quentin Sports. How you gonna have a sports and social justice symposium and you don't have the voice of San Quentin Sports up here? You know, and so that's when I seen that the work I was doing with play by play was seen as a significance off the court as well. You know, and it was respected by none other than Bob Myers of the Golden State Warriors who just told Van Jones, one of the uh, leading progressive voices in the country, we're not doing nothing unless we get Showtime on stage with them, you know? And so that let me know the type of confidence that they had in me then to set up for that email I got a few years later. The talent in prison, how many of those guys do you think actually could have made the NBA if they were really on the right path and didn't land themselves in jail? Yes, yes. Every prison I've been to, there's somebody, at least one person, who I'd look at and say, I know you could have played in the NBA. I know you could. There's one guy, his name is, uh, who was his name? I can't think of his name. Um, Top Cat, something like that. This guy was 6'8", right? Uh, about 177, 188 pounds. I mean, 177, 178 pounds. So he's 6'8", and he's built like a, uh, like a praying madness. You couldn't stop this dude on the court. The, all the best basketball players on the court couldn't stop this dude. There was another player who I never seen play at other prisons. I only heard about him, and I met him at San Quentin after he was 55 years old. His name is Oris Williams, O-R-I-S Williams. You can find him on Instagram. I nicknamed him the best nickname I have ever produced in life. Nobody gets this nickname. The one person in the NBA who I would be willing to give it to, when I talked to Pep, he said, man, don't give my name away, please. This man's nickname is the human theme song. Every time he shoots the ball, it's like he's out of the 70s. He was like a funk lick on the guitar. So whenever he went to make a move, I went do-do-do-do-do, right in the middle of the play-by-play. -play. The first time I did it, everybody on the yard looked. And then the next time he went to shoot the ball and I did it, th that sealed it right there. You know, Pep with the ball out at half court, pull up Jay, do-do-do-do-do, bucket. That sealed it right then. He is the human theme song at that point. And everybody used to, hey, do-do-do-do-do, how you doing? <laughs>
What's your advice to a famous athlete or a young athlete coming up who has it all, has all the potential, but is still on that bad road outside of sports, not fully focused, but has the talent? What's your advice to really get them on track and kind of out of that outside life and just fully into sports? Bluntly, knock that shit off, man. Stop playing. Stop playing with the game. Look, you got choices in life that you can make. Real life choices, right? And if you listen to me right now, I'm finna give it to you the way you're supposed to get it. Just in case your big brother, your father didn't give it to you this way, I'm finna give it to you the way you should have got it. You got two choices. You can either stand up, you can lay down. Standing up means stepping away from the nonsense and focusing on your career in basketball. That means training. That means resting. That means work ethic. That means putting your nose to the grind every morning when you get up. If there's a, if there's a breakfast routine that you have, do it. Whether you like it or not, whether you feel like it or not, you dedicate yourself to your craft. The only way, the only way you're going to succeed to have a chance at succeeding is not to be the best at what you do, but to work at what you do constantly, consistently, always look to improve. You're never going to be good enough. And the moment that you think you're good enough is the moment that you lose. When it comes to sports, you have to stay focused, just like a business person. And your business is your body and the craft that you're trying to get to in that particular sport, right? Work, 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 work. Hashtag hard work, hashtag work hard. There is a reward in it. If it does nothing else to teach you personal discipline on how to get up and do the same thing every day, right? So you can set your mind and your body together. But if you allow somebody else to tell you that you can't do something, to tell you that it's too hard to do something, and they haven't even attempted to do it, then you need your ass kicked. Go get it. And there's real sincerity in there because you've seen it too many times. You I've don't seen guys, it. man, on, it's guys that was at San Quentin. There was one guy who used to play with Louisville that came to San Quentin, seven foot one. When he hit the yard, oh yeah, we can ready to beat the Golden State Warriors ass with this dude. But up here, he was lost. Up here, he was still mentally still stuck on the block, like you was just speaking about. And one of the biggest, uh, one of the biggest obstacles to anybody succeeding is how they view themselves. You have to be your first motivator. Stop waiting for people to cheer you. You go get it on your own. Since I've been home, I don't stand around and wait for people to give me accolades. I got my head down and I'm working. When I look up, somebody's standing there asking me, how did you do all of this? I was just working. <laughs> I pull up my head to have an interview like this to share what I'm talking about. When I finish this interview, I'm going right back in my apartment. I'm going right back to work. I'm a content creator for, coin, for the World Famous Coin Academy as well as a play-by-play -play announcer. So I need to always be in a space where I can have this clear. And as an athlete, you need, you need to be able to have this clear because your body is only 15% of what you're going to be doing on the court or the field. The other 85% is mental. The only thing that separates LeBron James from any other basketball player on the planet is not that he just went to nine straight finals, missed one, and then went back to another one and won. That's not it. It's the mental approach to the game that makes him on a different level than everybody else. It's the mental approach to the game that made Jordan 
better than everybody else. It wasn't his physicality. He wasn't jumping higher than anybody else that was 6'6 at the time. You know, he wasn't soaring any longer than anybody else at the time. That's humanly impossible. But up here, there's something that players of any sport, business persons in any field on April the 10th, 2021, I didn't walk up in there, you know, shivering. I walked in there in awe because it is an NBA arena and I gave it its proper respect. But when I walked up in there, I walked up in there like this is where I was supposed to be at 26 years ago. And I took the detour, right? So I'm standing here now in space that I earned myself. I earned every piece of everything that's happened to me since I came home based on the foundational work that I did while I was inside of CDCR. And my focus and my message has not changed. I don't hate the people who hated on me because they're still incarcerated and my job is to represent the incarcerated. At the same time, I'm not mad at society for choosing to pass laws based on actions my generation was taking that led me to prison for 26 years, right? And so I find myself in a unique position of being sympathetic and empathetic to varying factors, societal factors in my life that helped me to become the person I am now. Of course, you get some really good answers from me, man. I'm gonna need you to get some. I need some money from you. You have to cash at me after this, bro, for real. (laughs) Oh man, you are cracking me up. And when calling a basketball game, what were your favorite punchlines in prison, outside of prison? Anytime you're calling basketball, the face that was in the face, a three point, a deep three point facial exfoliation. Oh man, he rubbed his face with that deep one. Oh man, he got egg all over him. Oh man, this game is in the refrigerator. The jello's getting hard. <laughs> the jello's jiggling. The butter's getting hard. The ice is frozen. Uh, whatever else chick said, chick said on that, when it would come to me in the moment, I never fell off of it then. Um, yo-yoing the ball up and down, uh, pounding that rock into the concrete, uh, using that big body to make a ball body, no, making that big body to make a small body into a smaller body up underneath the rim. You know, I had all kind of little stuff, you know, get that trash out of here. Um, I did come up uh, before I had my first cell phone. Somebody tell me somebody told me what uh, LMOA meant. Right. I was like, what is that? It's like laughing my ass off. I said, I'm going to incorporate that. I'm going to incorporate that in my game. Right. So, yeah, that kind of stuff. Like if somebody gets stole, uh oh, hashtag LMAO, you see what happened. <laughs> You're almost riding a high when you're commentating basketball for that hour, two hours, whatever it is, out in the yard. But then the other 20-plus hours, you're in your prison cell. What's it like going from being the man out there and then to just being lonely in, you know, a a square cell? And I thought about that many times while I was in prison, man, how I could be back in the cell after we just left the yard. You know, the games are over with. Everybody's, you know, drilling coming down, and I'm back in the cell. I used to think about that, and I, you know, it was escapism. I helped provide a sort of psychological reprieve from prison. You know, just just for that hour, two hours. You know, whether you was playing in the game and you heard your name called, or you knew your nickname, and so you know I'm talking about you, or you was watching the game or you just affiliated to the area because it was good positive energy there was such a contrast to my everyday or every other hour life. You know, um, I'll put it this way. And, and I use this example because it's the easiest, even though it's the most offensive one 
and I don't mean to be offensive for anybody listening to what I'm getting ready to say, please understand that I've been in prison for 26 years. I've been telling people this since I've been home because they say I'm a little too hard. I was in prison for 26 years. The currency in prison is truth. Those who have truth also have character integrity. Those who don't have truth have all of the other negative qualities. And I only mess with people who are standing on truth, character, humility, accountability, integrity, and, res and responsibility. When you're in prison and you're heterosexual, it is the absolute hardest time in the world for you. Because you're being denied something that we naturally do. You know, for individuals that are or do uh, live another lifestyle other than heterosexual, I'm pretty sure they don't want to be in jail either. Don't nobody want to be up in jail. Let's, let's be clear about that. I don't get damn what your sexual preference is. But if your sexual preference is other than heterosexual, there are ways for you to be able to relieve yourself in prison other than, you know, by self. And so in that one small thing, that one small thing that we all naturally want and long for, if you're heterosexual in prison, your time is gonna be much, much harder than anybody else's. Even though prison is hard on everybody, on every level. Don't, I don't, I'm not trying to you know, single this out, but for me, I can only speak for me. You know, I, Before I went to prison, I definitely wasn't a virgin, but I had to cut off that side of my life, period. For 26 years, three months, and three weeks. Those level fours are violent places. Even while we're calling the game, violence can crack off just like that. People can die right in front of you just like that. On a level three, it's a younger age, so it's more fighting than it is knife play. But again, violence almost happening any time, any time, because we're in prison and everything is violent. So anything is liable to happen in those 23 hours other than that hour I'm calling the game. You know, my life was literally on the line on level fours. You don't know if a fist fight takes place next to you and you don't have anything to do with it, but that guard up there is shooting in your direction. I've seen many innocent people get hit by bullets that was meant for somebody else in prison and outside of prison. I've seen many people get hurt inside of prison and outside of prison, just standing too close in proximity to some bullshit, which goes back to the thing about kids that are on that path and they trying to make this decision between the one and the two it ain't that hard to make. The hard part is, is executing the decision that you make because if you're about to cut off your friends or you're about to lose some friends, that's a hard cut you have to make. But you're doing it for something greater. You're doing it for something greater. And that's the same thing with those 23 hours that I wasn't doing play by play. I had to figure out a way that I could exist in a violent environment and make it peaceful without no guns, without telling nobody I'm gonna do something to you. I had to figure out a way to teach people peace in a place where peace is not the currency. And in, I found a way to do it through basketball. When in prison, how up to date were you? I know some prisons have TVs, I'm sure cell phones as technology evolved, but were you watching games? Were you really reading the paper and being up to date with everything? Every, all of the above. Uh, every, if you can afford it, you can buy your own television in prison and it can set up in your cell. Right, uh, so I definitely had access to all sports and all sports shows inside. The, at that time, it was inside the NBA with Amar Rashad, and that whole 1996 through about 2000, that 10-year period, that's where all of my information for sports came from. 
And tell me about getting released from prison. I'm, I'm most excited to hear this response because it's crazy. After 26 years, you're coming into a social media-driven world, a technology-driven world where everybody has a cell phone. And back in 94, it really wasn't a thing. Social media wasn't a thing. And also, you come out in a 2020 COVID-19 pandemic. So explain all that coming out of prison. This is what we're looking at. In 2009, I got my first illegal cell phone, right? And I had a chance to see what Facebook was like. So Facebook was cool. You know, it's just a lot of nonsense on there. People with opinions and crazy stuff that I was reading. But I had an opportunity to see something outside the world I was in. I come home with a plan, though. And I have almost to perfection executed that plan. I was already in the movie Cue Ball, so I know I had support from there, but the country didn't know about me. And so my first thing was to literally attack social media. I attacked Instagram and I attacked TikTok. On TikTok, my name is Uncle Daddy Grandpa with no D in the grandpa. So what I did social media wise was I wanted to create a buzz around two things. One, Aaron Showtime Taylor as a play-by-play -play basketball announcer, and two, a complete separate identity that had absolutely nothing to do with Aaron Showtime Taylor and had everything to do with Uncle Daddy Grandpa and created that on TikTok. So now I'm on TikTok doing digital lip syncing and I'm damn good at it. You need to go follow me. While at the same time, I'm doing play-by-play -play for the Venice Basketball League, the American Basketball Association, and eventually I make it to the Warriors. After I do the Warrior game, there's a guy on TikTok named Andy Dooley. He's a fitness coach. And he gets a lot of updates and people send him stuff. Well, lo and behold, Andy Dooley has me, has the tape with me and Steph Curry there, and he's showing it, and it's a duet, and he's pointing to him, man, this guy right here is dope. Well, it just so happened at that time, I had like 7,000 followers on TikTok, and somebody seen that video and said, hey, that's Uncle Daddy Grandpa. Wait a minute. Aaron Taylor is Uncle Daddy Grandpa. That's the same person. So now those two combined, I already had a following on Facebook. I think I got 3,800 over there. They know about my day-to-day -day thoughts. That's like my journal. That's like my diary. You know, the things where I get the opportunity to tell people, just for instance, recently, I revealed this. I said, look, ever since I left that Warrior game, every week, a minimum of about 200 DMs and, and, and emails and stuff. Maximum I had up to like 1,500. I'm getting these stuff and people are telling me, man, I got an uncle in jail. My daddy's in jail. My mom is in jail. My cousin's in jail. Ooh. One guy on TikTok said, man, it would mean the world to my son if you just sent him some photos. So what the Warriors did as an organization to back this question up, to back up, to clarify it and put it in, into perspective. The moment that they sent me that email and I agreed, I had a sense that I was getting ready to be the, the Jackie Robinson of ex-convicts, straight up. I remember me and my nieces were sitting on the corner of Crenshaw and Adams, and that was during when 42 was out. So they had the 42 up on the billboard and I looked and I said, that's getting ready to be me of ex-convicts. And they said, what? I'm the first ex-con they're getting ready to let do this stuff. Everything that's getting ready to happen after this is going to be on me. If I fuck this up, then everybody coming out of jail after this is not going to get a chance. They're not going to have the benefit of the doubt. 
I'm being given the benefit of the doubt. So I can't fail. If I fail, then everybody coming out of jail is going to be treated the same way I'm going to be treated for fucking up. And I couldn't have that. If you're going to make me the ex-con of, if you're going to make me the Jackie Robinsons of ex-cons, then I have to be humble when I go up in there. I have to be Jackie Robinson when I'm up in there. I have know that these darts and bullets are coming at me from the NBA as an organization, worried about their product. You know, they have a brand too. They don't want their brand associated with some dude who might jump up and do something crazy. Individual who doesn't have the sense on how to control themselves, right? And you put me up there. What if I'd have got up there and 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 and, and uh, uh, one of those guys? I forget who was the the, the announcers that night. But what if one of them would have asked me a question and I wasn't in the right state of mind and I flashed on him like I was in prison? Hey, Showtime, what you think about the guy who patted that dude on the butt? What? Who was patting him on? What do you mean? I didn't see nothing like that. Why are you talking to me about something? What if I would have responded like that? Instead, I had taken the time to really educate myself and know what I was walking into. And I knew when I went up there and they put that mic in my face, there's no way anything that comes out of my mouth is going to be reflective of everybody else that comes behind me. And that magical night, PA announcer for the Golden State Warriors, of course, it made its rounds going viral on social media. I made sure to cover it on, on NBA Buzz back then. Tell me about it, calling the game, meeting all the players, the post-game interview with Steph Curry, celebrating the occasion, them showering you with water. It just, it just all looked incredible. Like I was a team member, like I had finally made it. That all the work I did, all the sacrifice, Missed sleep, getting yelled at, called out my name. It was worth it. To dedicate myself to this for 26 years. And Kent Lakeup told me I had action. I could have went straight to the G League. I could have had a tryout straight at the Santa Cruz Warriors. I asked him for that right after uh, ATL asked him about, they talked about the shot in the movie. When the camera switched, I had already slid over the curb and I forgot I was mic'd up, but I did ask him. And he said, yeah, when you get out, you can get a shot. So I could have went to, straight to the G League, straight to the Santa Cruz Warriors with a tryout. I can't jump straight from this yard and jump straight to the G League. I need to go home. I need to go try for the BBL. It just so happens that Austin Saldner, who played on the green team with Don Smith and, 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 and Bill Epley, Austin Saldner is also the CEO and president of Future Move Glasses. Right, F-U-T-U-R-E-M-O-O-D, Future Move Studios, and they have these glasses and stuff. So Austin is friends with Nick, who runs the Venice Basketball League. Nick saw Q-Ball. Austin talks to him. When they find out I'm coming home, Venice says, we got a spot for you. Okay, I'm not going to San Francisco. I'm going back home to L.A. I got released on October the 16th, 2020. On November the 17th, 2020, I walked out of the transition home to a camera in my face and a documentary being filmed. And about 30 minutes later, I was at Dot Wilder Beach calling basketball on the street. Amazing. Amazing stuff. The, the and guess who, came to, guess who came to the beach when I was out there calling the game? Who's that? Steve McDowell. The same guy who was heckling on the sideline in San Quentin that got out before me and he heard I was calling the game and I looked up and he came walking across to me. I was standing out there on the beach 30 days after coming home. I didn't know nobody out there. I didn't even know my own family. You know, I was gone for 26 years. People changed, so I didn't even know them. 
and to see Caesar coming at me like that, man, I, it, it was like seeing him, like going home almost. You know, I'm still, I, I tear up about it, man, because I love this game. Inside of prison, I gave my all to basketball. I gave my all to sports. I've been, I've been talked about and accused of a lot of things in prison that I didn't do just because I was doing something positive for other people. So I'd given my life in sacrifice and service to sports and to rehabilitation and to try to get sports voluntary uh, participation in sports in prison seen as part of the overall rehabilitation process. At San Quentin, we set that program up and sent it up to headquarters. And I'm still pushing on it now that anybody that voluntarily is taking part in sports in prison because uh, sports is uh, team orientated in most cases and you dealing with conflict resolution and learning how to manage your emotions and being emotionally present without being, you know, above and beyond, those are, you get to immediately put what you learn straight into practice on the field or the court. And so if you understand that, now we're looking at, wait a minute, you just took a self-help group where they was telling you about emotional intelligence and how to uh, transform negative energy into positive through physical exercise. Here's the football field. Here's the basketball court. There's the track. So now sports is being seen not only as a way to really rehabilitate somebody, but now we're talking about mental health and wellness, spiritual health and wellness, psychological health and wellness, all by participating in sports. You said uh, you said a few questions back. Draymond Green was the realest one on the yard. Talk to me about Steph Curry, how he treated you that night as a PA announcer. That postgame conversation, he just seemed like he was all the he had all the support for you. He does, and and um. Again, actions back up words. You know, um, Steph Curry and Klay Thompson were two of the players that everybody in San Quentin wanted to see walk down that hill to come check out a game. And I remember people asking me that while I was the sports editor in San Quentin for the paper, and they would ask me my opinion, man, why, why won't Steph Curry come up here? Man, why won't Klay Thompson? How come those big players won't come? And I said, listen, watch the news. Steph Curry is over there in, in East Oakland doing something with a bunch of kids getting filmed. Clay Thompson's on his boat. He's always been private. Hell, I know his daddy. All of anybody of my age that was from LA know his daddy played uh, over here in Compton, played basketball and stuff. Matter of fact, with my color commentary man, LA Cook, who was in the uh, video with me, uh, LA was the guard and Mike was, and, uh, and Clay Thompson's daddy was his forward and they won a, a city championship together. And I'm telling these guys in prison, look, I know we want to see Steph Curry. Well, damn, I want to see Klay Thompson too, but they ain't built like that. Don't hold that against him. You know, this dude is an MVP all-star. So when I'm standing next to him, well, actually, I didn't know he was coming. I thought it was over. But once I did the, the public address, okay, I got Matt Pittman, who's the public address now, so there, he's helping me. I got Ann Park over here on this side. They congratulate me. I'm just happy to get through because don't nobody know this. I'll tell you now, most people don't know I was in the middle of a diabetic seizure during those during that time. I had diabetes and didn't know it. I had been urinating every two hours since two days before I took the flight there. And I didn't know why. So during the game, the night before when, when, West, when Westbrook gave me the shoes and I'm just sitting there watching, every time out in between every quarter, I'm going to urinate. I got to pee, right? I don't know what's wrong with me. So, so between the third and the fourth quarter, I shoot to go to the bathroom. And when I come out, Sean Livingston is standing there, right? Now look, I'm a Clipper fan. 
I know who the hell Sean Livingston is. You know, as soon as I see Sean Livingston, right, I'm standing, I'm going, you're Sean Livingston. He's like, hey, Showtime, man, you got a really, really inspirational, now he's tall, right? So I'm leaning down. It's like, you got a really, really inspirational story. <laughs> but I'm like this, you're Sean Livingston. <laughs> Listen, man, Draymond Green, I didn't fanboy out in prison. Kevin Durant, anybody they brought in prison from the NFL, all and Ronnie Lott. I love Ronnie Lott as a football player, but when you come in, I'm a reporter. Sean Livingston, I fanboyed out on. I fanboyed on him, for real. I shouldn't even did it. I'm ashamed to say it, that I fanboyed out when I'm 55 years old on Sean Livingston, but I did. Most people would do that for Michael Jordan. Sean Livingston was my man on that level. <laughs> Aaron, what's the best part about being a free man? Sex. <laughs> Have you seen my fiance? <laughs> <laughs> the best part about being a free man is now I have a greater appreciation for who I am personally. You know, after 26 years in prison, there are three things that I stand on as a, from a prison mind state that I walked away from prison for. I never snitched on anybody for anything. I got the time I got because I wouldn't tell. That's a street code thing for me. That has nothing to do with us as a citizen. That has nothing, this is street code stuff I'm talking about. I never snitched on, on anybody. I never ran out on a riot and left somebody hanging in prison. And I never snuck behind the curtain with somebody's son in prison. Those are the three things that I walked out of prison with. What I walked into the society with, the, three, the, the benefits of being free. I've been through the process that most people out here are just talking about. People out here are talking about their traumas and how to heal their traumas. I have the distinct benefit of being a graduate of Guiding Rage into Power, which is called GRIP. I have the distinction of being not just a graduate, but a facilitator in Cage Your Rage and Alternatives to Violence, right, from inside of prison. One of the most beautiful things about being free is that now I get to give back to people and teach them how to walk backward down the path and help them deal with those traumas. Because most of the traumas and most of the reasons that people make the mistakes they make as an adult is based on something that happened to them as a child. With the understanding of the definition of trauma means something that I didn't want to happen and I had no control over it. If we understand that those two are the definition of trauma, then everybody in their childhood has something like that happened to them on some level and the decisions they make in their older life is to protect the inner child that they couldn't protect back then. So I have the unique benefit of having spent 26 years in prison, gone through the transformational process and being in a position out here to help people. Have you been back to the prisons you were at or San Quentin to kind of mentor the inmates? I'm going back September the 23rd for the, San, for the second uh, sports and social justice uh, symposium. It's going to have uh, UFCs there. Viacom's going to be there. Hard in the paint. I'm going to be there. And my comp the company that hired me, Coin Media, ran by K uh, Casey Lee Stinson and Victoria Stinson, beautiful people to work for, beautiful people to work with, and all of our crew up in, in the Coin Media. We're going up there. And I think we're bringing uh, Bill Avon. I don't want to mess her last name up, but she's the CEO of Innovation, Innovation City. Uh, um, um, uh, studio down in San Diego and specifically her company helps the formerly incarcerated who couldn't qualify for PPP loans 
they have a fund to, that that they that formerly incarcerated can get loans from to help out because we a lot of us didn't qualify for the PPP loan. So the, the people that I'm bringing back into San Quentin with me are out here doing the work to make it easier for guys when they come out to help facilitate their trans uh their transference from prison back into society. Look, it's back to the question of freedom. I am definitely still a work in progress, man. I'm out here and admittedly, admittedly, I'm still moving as if mentally I'm in prison. With that being said, though, that prison mentality, and I've only been out 22 months officially today. I haven't even been out two years yet. That prison mentality that I get a lot of criticism for, and I openly say I need to change parts of it, is the same mentality that when I walked out that got me to where I am now. And if people wonder where I am now, right? I am a content creator, a world famous coin in Pasadena. I'm the host of Hard in the Paint. I'm still the president of Elevated Entertainment, although I'm about to make a decision on that. Cause I think it's time, my, my family, my, one of the things when I got out of prison was to create intergenerational wealth for my family. My family has been living hand to mouth as long as I remember. And while I was inside, I had a chance to really get to some study in this. So, I wanted to create some intergenerational wealth. So since I've been home, we created the company Elevated Entertainment, which is a management company that managed Aaron Showtime Taylor. And I put my family in those positions in that company, right? And so we're getting to the point now where I'm ready to move on in my career, but I set up something and handed it over to my family so they can work with now. So inside of two years, since I've been home, since we're talking about freedom, right? I created... Elevated Entertainment. Elevated Entertainment is a managing LLC company that handled Aaron Showtime Taylor's career. So if, if you want to know what Elevated Entertainment can do in 22 months, check what I did. That's telling you what Elevated Entertainment is about. And at this point, if I, give it, if I decide to move on, I've set my family up. Here's a company. Now all you got to do is make it work. I came out of prison. I did the heavy lifting. You know, now here you go and I'm gonna pass it straight to him, right? So I did my responsibility on that. As a senior in my family, I, I put something together to help my family create intergenerational. Don't hand us nothing. We don't want any handouts in my family. We wanna work for everything we have. You know what I'm saying? If my, and quote my uncle, I mean, my nieces and my nephews will tell you quick, fast, in a hurry. If my uncle got out of prison and in 22 months, he found himself in a studio with his own show, then what's your problem? And I'm looking back at them now saying, okay, you know what, you're right. I did this in 22 months and I'm ready to hand you the business. Now let's see what you can do. Yeah. Now it's your turn to show up and show out. You know and what I'm that, saying? That takes me to a perfect, perfect question. Are there other success stories like yours out there that we just don't really hear about? Or is it kind of, you know, a lot of prisoners get out and are always going back in? There's a whole bunch of Aaron Showtime Taylors in there. And if you go on my Instagram page uh, into my reels, you can see my heart in the paints on Freedom Fridays, where I've brought in at least 25 or 30 success stories of individuals who got out. I'm gonna give you the story of one. You can look him up right here on Instagram if you follow him on Instagram. His name is June the Barber. June the Barber was in San Quentin State Prison, cutting hair on the yard. June the Barber got released. He went home and rented a, a shop and started cutting hair. So now we have the next con who just went and rented a space and then created a business. Sounds like the American story about to get started. Then there was a partner of his who used to cut hair with him inside, right? Who got released, 
So now June sees that he's released. He said, come on, I got a booth for you. So now he hired somebody. Those are the American sport, uh, those are the American stories, not sports stories, stories that aren't being told, but I'm taking the opportunity to tell it on hard in the paint. Everybody that I work with on hard in the paint, with the exception of two people, and the majority of the people that I work with in world famous coin are all formerly incarcerated. The wow. person who owns world famous coin, I can hear your voice now. The person who owns world famous coin is formerly incarcerated. So what the Golden State Warriors did for me, and this is part of my freedom, the question is, they put me in a position to become that ex-con, that Jackie Robinson of ex-cons, and that put me in a position to become the voice of the incarcerated and the formerly incarcerated. So what you're getting this morning is, is yes, I'm about to leave Elevated Entertainment as a management company, leave it to my family, and then I'm about to sign with another management company, reducing my responsibilities, because now I don't have to worry about a company over here. I can just worry about my career now. In the first 22 months, I've been dragging my career, trying to build a company, trying to build a brand, and trying to build a show all at once. I'm sure you frequently ask yourself this question throughout your prison stint. You know, certain benchmarks you want to reach at certain points in your, in your time. But right now, where does Aaron Showtime Taylor want to be in 10 years? Oh, in 10 years? <laughs> I want to be a father. <laughs> I want to be uh, a husband. Um, I want to be thinking about retiring from play-by-play, -play, but just giving it some thought because 10 years from now, I'll be 66. So I'll be like, yeah, 70. Because when I left prison, when I left the parole board hearing, I told Commissioner Anderson, and I looked him straight in the face like I'm looking right in the camera. In five to seven years, I'm going to call an NBA final series. I pray that it goes seven games. So in 10 years, I'm hoping I would have called that NBA finals and I pray to God it goes seven games so I can get to do a complete seven game series. The past two NBA finals in 2021, the Venice Basketball League had me set up in front of Baron Davis house to call game seven of the NBA finals sitting on the hoop bus in front of a big screen and they was gonna televise it on YouTube, didn't go to game seven. This past NBA finals, the Warriors make it. And I'm sitting and I'm, I'm about to call Raymond Ritter on the phone because I'm like, y'all can ready to go to game seven, right? <laughs> if you go to game seven, I want to be up in the Chase Center doing the team introductions. I'm doing that, man. Y'all got to let me have that. There's no way you cannot let me do this because I'm Aaron Showtime Taylor, right? I need to be doing those team intros just like I did during the pandemic. But I know that the Warriors is getting ready to beat the dog mess out of the Celtics in Boston, right? So what I did was I went to Coin to, to the people that hired me. I said, hey, look, we can't show the game on YouTube. Can we record me doing play-by-play -play for the game while it's playing? And we did that. It's up on my Instagram page in my reels. And you see me sitting there in a chair and I show the whole thing. This is to answer your question. And it goes back to an earlier point. While Mike Green and them was setting up on camera and they showing NBA countdown and this stuff, I'm sitting in the chair with cameras this way and one in front of me. And while I'm sitting there, it hits me. I'm on the street 
in a studio on a 24 by 50, on a 24 by 48 screen, looking at the NBA finals and I'm about to call it sitting in the chair and I just, all the emotions just hit and I broke down, I started crying, right? And you'll see one of the producers, Lenny, he comes near me and he says, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah. But then my niece saw me and she had just walked in and she walked straight through the set because I'm sitting there crying and she, she knows me pretty well. Yes, I've been in prison, but I, I do allow my emotions to show now. I'm, I'm a full human being. So if I, if I cry, I'm a cry. If I don't, I don't. If I'm happy, I'm gonna be happy. But she seen it and she came over and I had to stop and know that I got this. And I pulled myself together. The moment hit my chest that I am getting ready to literally set and call the NBA final game. It hit me. That's something I've been praying for for years. I want the opportunity to call a complete NBA finals. That's my dream. That's just a dream. And I got other stuff, but that dream is the one I'm going to manifest. I'm going to manifest that. And that's the perfect ending because based off that, I'm turning that piece right into content. I'm putting that out there. All to my millions and millions of followers, we're going to try to make that happen for you, brother. I want I want that bad as, listen. I want that. I want to be sitting in that seat. I'm I sure. put 26 years worth into this. Yeah. And I'm it's good. I'm, it's well deserved. Of, but admittedly, there's a lot of room for improvement on my own. I, I know that because I was calling jail games. As much as I like to boast and brag on my dudes, and I'm going to always boast and brag on them dudes made me who I am, right? But I, I do understand it's a prison game versus what I'm looking at the NBA. That's why I gave myself a few years, but I want that. I want to be sitting in that seat and I want to call that game from the lead seat and have a color analyst next to me so I can take a break, throw up in the damn uh, uh, a basket because I'm, I'm realizing what's going on. Aaron, it was a pleasure meeting you, a pleasure having you on episode 40 of Inside Buzz. I just want to say I'm proud of you. The entire basketball community is proud of you. I know the Golden State Warriors are proud of you. And I'm so excited to keep tabs on everything you're doing moving forward and, you know, keep killing it out there and, you know, living life as a free man. Thank you, brother. Thank. Hey, look, y'all, y'all make sure you stick with Mike D. It's my dude right here. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Mikey Domagala. That was Aaron Showtime Taylor, and that was episode 40 of Inside Buzz.